and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Our guest this week, Tabby Politsky, is helping us continue our series on global readers. Once a season, we talk with a book lover who grew up in another country that has made the United States their home. In seasons one and two, we talk to readers from Somalia and Ireland, and in season three, we're exploring Germany. Fortunately, Instagram has made meeting book-loving people who come from all over the world much easier, which is how we connected with Tabby. She joined us remotely from her home in Los Angeles. Tabby moved from Germany to the United States as a teenager, where she struggled a bit to understand American English versus the British English she had been taught in her home country, but she came to appreciate the American educational system, which she found more inclusive. Tabby didn't read much in her teen years, but came to love literature again in her 20s by reading Jane Austen. Now she's a pastry chef and co-host of the Modern Life podcast, where she combines her love of literature and cinema by discussing book-to-movie adaptations. Tabby talks to us about why she thinks texts by German writers have the reputation of being very heavy, what destination in Germany you should definitely visit if you are a book lover, what is one of the strangest book-to-movie adaptations she's talked about on her podcast, and which of her favorite fairy tales hasn't been Disney-fied. We've got a special guest today. Her name is Tabby Politsky. She's special for a lot of reasons. One is because we met her via Instagram or Bookstagram. She is a pastry chef and the co-host of the podcast Modern Life, and she was kind enough to let Amy and I blabber on about the age of innocence on her podcast. (laughs) She's also a fellow book lover, and she is in California. So she got up early on this Sunday to talk with us. So Tabby, thanks so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about where you are in California right now. There's all kinds of wildfires going on. Is it as bad there as it looks like it is on TV? Yes, um, not exactly where I am living now, where I lived last year when the fires were going on. We were on a warning standby, and I had actually put all my vintage books in the car just so I was ready to go in case anything happened. All I really cared about was my books, but we were fine then too. It is always really scary, and so many houses are burning down, but it's also important to remember that This is a normal ecological cycle of California. A lot of seeds are actually smoke-dependent and won't start blooming until they detect smoke. So the environment around us has actually evolved to respond to the fires, but it's tough when you have so many millions of people living on a planet and (laughs) we aren't used to that nomadic life. We are just here in our houses and hoping everything will be fine. So Well, we hope you remain safe out there. So... Thank you. Well, tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do and your interest in reading. 
Absolutely. So I'm in my early 30s. I currently live in the LA area, as I said. I was actually born near London in the UK, and I grew up in Germany. I moved to the USA when I was 14, and high school started the next day after I arrived here. (laughs) So yeah, a big change, but I'm here now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you didn't really get much of a leeway. Like you arrive and okay, go to high school. (laughs) (laughs) No, and... The person who was supposed to walk me through all my classes, she thought I was older than I really was. And she put me in like a 12th grade science class on accident. And I was like, well, I can't really understand anybody's accents yet. And I don't know what's going on here. And I was like on the verge of tears. Like, I can't do this. (laughs) Trial by fire. For sure. Yeah. So you, you said you were born in London. How old were you when you moved to Germany? Uh, Very young. And my parents were only there for their education. So they're both German. My father still lives in Germany and my mother lives near San Diego, kind of around the corner. So I don't remember anything from that time. What was your reading life when you were learning to read in Germany? What were you interested in? What books did you tend to gravitate towards? So the books that every German kid reads, for example, is Ottfried Preussler. He does these little kids' books, like The Little Witch and The Little Ghost, and they're these beautiful illustrated stories about all these fantastical creatures. Another really popular one is Erich Kästner. My middle school was actually named after him, and he is a best-selling author in Germany, but I think the only thing people know him for here is the book Double Lottie. It's called something different, though, here. I think it's called The Parent Trap. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually have never seen any of the movies, but we grew up with the books. And then, of course... Michael Ender, who wrote The NeverEnding Story. He has so many books out that you would have read as a kid. And then actually a lot of Swedish books, too. A lot by Astrid Lindgren, who's the author of Pippi Longstockings. It's kind of all over the place. So you came to the U.S. during your teenage years, and you've said that the two educational systems are very different. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So there's three tiers of schools in Germany. A lot of... European countries have similar system to this, but I was on the university track school and I was failing pretty hard in Germany. (laughs) Uh, So coming to the US, I was like, oh, this is easy. Once I got a hold of the language, like no one's expecting me to be able to read music. I don't have to speak more than one language. So the other two tiers of schools are more geared towards, you you know, you're not going to university, you're going to um, an apprenticeship. Like if I were to become a baker, people would probably start that around age 15. So you don't have to, for example, learn as many languages. You might have only learned English in school. That is a really cool concept, but it also creates a lot of class struggles and class structures based on what high school you went to, if that makes sense, or how educated Mm -hmm. you are, where it's supposed to be you know, oh, you're more good with your hands than, and you don't want to be a doctor. That is the theory, but unfortunately, it doesn't quite work out in practice. And also the education is still very colonial, if that makes sense, and not very inclusive. It's still very old school. And talking to high school kids today, they're saying the same thing. They're like, yeah, you know, still the same curriculum in German high schools. And hopefully that'll get a little bit better. I actually went to New Vista High School in Boulder, Colorado. That's where I moved to. 
And it absolutely blew my mind. It was a very inclusive high school that focused more about making better people. And I think that's such a great way for education to be structured. So for example, I would have workshops on mental disability. We would have like school assemblies on rape culture. We would have trans speakers come to the school and tell us about their experience. Um, I took a class in Islamic studies, you know, which was very important also during a time when I was younger, when there was a huge sentiment of Islamophobia, which we unfortunately still have today. And I think the school did a really interesting thing of just focusing on a few topics at once. So instead of barreling through a whole catalog of classics that you then barely remember as you get older, we would have just focus on autobiographies. And then we would maybe read three autobiographies in the whole class and focus on writing our own. So I don't know that I feel like that kind of educational system works a little bit better for me where you just spend more time with one book and maybe understand it. So what kind of classics are you referring to in your in the German high school? When I left German high school, we hadn't really gotten into that many of the bigger books, but you would have definitely read, for example, later on, The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe. And yeah. that is actually a book I came to on my own. So when I just read it for fun, I really liked it. And I'm like, would I have liked it if I had to, you know, go through it over and over in a class? So they go through more German writers in German high school. But I can't, mm -hmm. again, I left before I got to all the more right. difficult ones. I, I'm interested, too, in what you said about the difference between, like, university and vocational, because, you know, that's mm -hmm. a big issue here in the United States. I think that over the years, people have been trying to make them more equal in terms of how we think about university. They're, they're both necessary to a yes. functioning mm -hmm. economy and to a functioning society. So I think there's been an effort to think of them. They're, of course, different, but one isn't necessarily better than the other. So it's interesting to me yes, to see that yes. that's problem, you know, not just in the United States. I want to back up because, you know, you had talked about the books that you tended to read and German children tended to read. Once you came to the United States as a teenager, were you still reading predominantly German books or did you switch and start reading books written by American authors? That's a really good question. I had actually a long period of time where I wasn't doing a lot of reading and the reading I was doing were for example, American books, like I remember reading The Giver, which kids read when they're like 10, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, but I was trying to catch up and like learn English. So I feel like there's a huge gap in my reading and I didn't get back into it seriously until maybe in my 20s. And I remember starting with Austin and that's only because the book looked really pretty at Barnes and Noble <laughs> and I picked it up and I was like this might make me smarter and then now I'm like a total Jainite but even that was hard reading at first in my early 20s um, just the language which now I have no issues with but I feel like in high school especially the first year I was just trying to do my schoolwork and understand English and get through it. So when you were going to school in Germany you were learning English as well? Yes, English is, in most schools, that is the first language that you learn. I do have a friend who grew up in Berlin, and he actually learned Spanish, and that is your compulsory language, and then later on, you are able to choose. So my high school was pretty 
old school, I would say. So we could choose between Latin and French. Now schools are adding Spanish, uh, Mandarin, other more modern languages, because people are just not gravitating towards Latin anymore. Um, so I took English and French. And then when I came here, my high school didn't even offer French, so I had to go to the college to take it there. But yeah, I just tried to keep up with my studies, even though I didn't want to. And my mom's like, no, you're going to keep learning French. <laughs> and good thing she made me do it. <laughs> so I took three years of Spanish in high school, and then I took a year of Spanish in college. And like for me, I can read Spanish fairly well, and I'm learning to read some French. If I had to listen to somebody and understand, I would have to slow it down so much. I can't speak it. So is that what happens? Like when you were learning English in Germany, was it similar in that you could read it, but you had a hard time speaking it and understanding it? Those steps are pretty common just for learning any language. The better you get, the further you'll get exactly in those steps, as you just mm -hmm. mentioned. You'll be better at then hearing it, and then you'll be better at speaking it yourself. I had a lot of trouble with just the American accent and hearing it because we are taught British English in German high schools. And of course, those teachers then also speak that with a German accent. <laughs> They're not, you know, perfect speakers. But I would say that's a pretty common path for any foreign language learner. Can you speak French now? Um, I'm very bad at it. I can barely speak it. And just like you, I am better at reading it and understanding okay. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, a lot of it has gone away. And I'm hoping to someday get it back. American readers may not realize it. But many of the tales that we learn as children are from German writers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. Are the Grimm fairy tales in Germany also told there? And are there ones that are told more frequently than the ones that are told in America? It's so part of your upbringing. It's like part of the fibers of your body. And I thought it was so funny that when I came here and talking to people, they thought, especially younger kids, that Disney movies are original stories. <laughs> and I was like, how could you ever think that? <laughs> um, yeah, the ones that I never see in the United States, one is Star Taylor, Taylor being a really old form of money. And that is a story about a girl who gives away all her possessions one after the other. Somebody keeps asking her for, oh, I need a hat, oh, I need shoes. And then by the end, she's alone in a forest with no possessions and is pretty short and it starts raining stars on her that form into money oh, wow. because it rewards her for being such a good person. That's a really cute one that I really like. And then also Snow White and Rose Red. I don't see that one a lot either. And this is also a different Snow White than Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. One being uh, Schneewittchen and one being Schneeweisschen, but they both translate into Snow White. And then there's also just so many of the fairy tales are changed. If I'm thinking here of not just the Grimm ones, but the Hans Christian Andersen's uh, Little Mermaid. It's my mother's favorite fairy tale because she's like, oh, it's so sad at the end when she turns into sea foam and she doesn't get her man. And of course, a Disney version <laughs> is like she gets her man. Everything's fine. But the interesting thing about the Brothers Grimm is when they went on their road trip to collect all these different stories that have been told orally from generation to generation, they set out to write a compendium for kids. So they were kids fairy tales. 
and it's called the fairy tale road that you can actually travel and follow their <gasps> path and visit all these like touristy little towns so a lot of people will actually do that when they go travel to germany but the grim version of fairy tales is almost like the disney version of fairy tales because they made them fit towards children and the example i always use for this is little red cap which they got from a french fairy tale and at the end of the fairy tale little red cap gets into bed with a big bad wolf and the story is kind of about don't get raped. But then when you have the grim version of it, it's, you know, don't walk off the path, listen to your parents. So even they changed the fairy tales to make them suitable for children. So it's like almost like Disney doing the same thing that they did. It's just an evolution of these stories, I feel like. I see a road trip in our future, Carrie. <laughs> At some point, the way I understood the fairy tales is that in original they had been much more violent and they had sort of been cleaned up. But I thought that was something that in the original German, they were more violent and American editors had cleaned them up. But it sounds like the Grimm brothers themselves cleaned things yeah. up. Yeah, that is true. Even though the Grimm fairy tales are still, I think by our standards, often considered violent. But so many of these classics like Cinderella, they're just classic stories. Um, it's been possible to really trace them back to anywhere because it's just the types of stories people like to tell. Yeah. So Snow White and Rose Red and Star Taylor, those are your two favorites? Star Taylor. I think it's translated also into Star Money. Okay. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. See if it's in that book. <laughs> I have a 1963, my book of grim fairy tales from when I was a kid that I've had on my shelf. And I went and pulled it off. I drew pictures in it. It's a hot mess. But oh. <laughs> it was kind of cool, you know, to go back in. So I want to read through it and see if I remember any of the more obscure ones that haven't been Absolutely. Disney-fied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you had mentioned some of the writers that maybe in high school German students are expected to read. So when we think about our great American writers, we tend to think of ones who've won the Nobel Prize. So uh, Hemingway, Faulkner, you know, more, I guess, modern contemporary one would be Toni Morrison. So if somebody asks you who are considered the great German writers to Germans, who would you say? I would say Thomas Mann, for sure. I've only read a little bit of him, but I think most people definitely read, what is it called? Death in Venice. Sorry, I'm translating in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Goethe, definitely. But also, one I really loved is Hermann Hesse. He wrote Nazis and Goldmund. It's a book I absolutely love. It's also really sexist, but it's still a really beautiful book. I have kind of like a love-hate relationship to it. He's a pretty famous German writer. And that is, again, I, a book I read on my own. So I'm like, if I had read it in school, would I have loved it as much? And then also there's so many German-speaking ones, like Franz Kafka, who was from Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic. But of course, you know, the metamorphosis and the trial, those are all definitely considered classics. So I've taught Kafka, The Metamorphosis, and last year I had students read All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, I haven't read that uh, one. Eric Maria of Remark. There was another one I was thinking about. Rilke? Yeah. But that's yeah, poetry, Rainer I think. Maria Rilke. Yes, that's definitely one we would have read also. I always have such trouble reading 
other authors that are translated, but I'm always looking for the best translation of crime and punishment. And like, you know, I have such trouble reading translated text because I'm like, am I getting the true authentic version of it? And but Rilke is a good one. And absolutely. So when you're reading a German author, I assume you're reading it in German. I would read it in right. German. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so have you ever then read it also then in the English version and compared? I'm I've, always curious about translation. I just think that that is such a hard thing to is. do. It is. <laughs> Absolutely. I have done it the other way around. So a lot of my favorite books that are in, written in English, I then go and check them out in German. I have now read most of Austin's works also in German. Especially, I just recently did an audiobook in German of Northanger Abbey, which is probably my favorite book of all time. And that is comedy. That is where Austin put all her humor, all her wit. And then you kind of wonder, well, that must be very hard to translate and be just as funny in a different language. This translation was really, really good. I, I mean, I laughed the whole way through. So somebody did a really good job there. But yeah, translation is definitely hard. I would not want to do it. Yeah, sometimes I have a hard enough time understanding, like I'm reading, and I'll be talking about this in a bit, but I'm reading Frankenstein. And depending on what you're reading, if it's denser text, it's hard enough to read it in your primary language, language, (laughs) you know, and then to imagine reading it in a language that isn't your primary language can be really... What part are you at in Frankenstein? Well, so I've read it, this is probably my third or fourth reading of it i'm at the point where the monster is telling his story he's been watching uh, the family that lives in the cottage so he's yes, conveying yes, yes. his story it's funny though because i think victor victor Fungstein, he's not german though he's yeah, swiss yes. right i think yes so he's swiss. He, they would actually be speaking in french i yeah. believe but i was actually gonna point to that part in the cottage because Fungstein's monster gets all his ethics and morals from reading Werther. And reading Frankenstein is what brought me to The Sorrows of Young Werther. And once you read that book, you're like, oh, like you'll start to understand why some of his views are so twisted based on the books that he consumes and the books that he used to learn human language. Oh, cool. Anyways. I can see this is going to be a (laughs) rabbit hole. We'll we'll talk more about this in the the second part. So as a kid, did you read any works by British or American writers when you were in Germany? And if you were, what were some of the ones that you were exposed to? A lot of Enid Blyton, which she is a kid's author, and she's from the UK, but a lot of people over here aren't that familiar with her. And then also Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting. I definitely remember reading that. I was obsessed with Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn just because of the whole adventure part and then I recently actually read both of those in English and I was like oh I definitely got an edited version <laughs> of the books and I was like I do not remember this I think I remember when I was reading Tom Sawyer asking my parents what slavery was but did I really understand it no <laughs> you know? I was like oh I don't remember all these racial slurs <laughs> when I was reading this book as a kid then when I looked it up they actually replaced a lot of the words in the German version and in the kids' version, so. I think there's be a perception among Americans about what German writing is like. I, I could see that American readers might think that German writing is really heavy. I don't know why there's that perception. But what would you say, you know, from having read 
German writers and American writers, what would you say is the biggest differences you see? And that might be the way things are written or thematically. That stereotype, I, I think where it comes from is just us trying to find our culture again and the effects of living under fascism for 10 years where you were legally not allowed to have a culture, not just in writing, but if you go to an art museum in Germany and it'll go through the different time periods, the time after Nazi Germany, all the art is just like angry blobs of paint and this just this darkness and this expression of feeling or that you couldn't really express for 10 years. And this brings me back to the never-ending story too and Michael Ende as a kid having to live a life of not talking about anything that was going on at home because he came from a very artistic family. How do you deal with that when suddenly creativity itself becomes illegal? And in the never-ending story, you have that nothingness that is taking over the world of the never-ending story. And I always wonder, does that come from his growing up in Nazi Germany as a kid? Because so many of these German authors have so many fantasy characters also in their in their kids lid. Um, I'm thinking here also of Paul Ma, who was a children's book author, and Max Kruse, who wrote Urme. This is again another like dinosaur type character that he wrote that's very famous in Germany. But all these out of the world fantasy type aspects, I think they come from a place of we just want to explore what's out there and kind of reclaim our culture. And it must be very hard to build all that up again in in music too. I mean, all art forms. I think that's where that comes from, of just this anger and reckoning and dealing with how do you even deal with that? You know, living through mm -hmm. that. I have never read The NeverEnding Story, but I'm adding it to my list. Have you seen the movie? Because typically when I think of that, I think of the film. I did when I was younger. I did not like it because I was a snob and I was a little kid who was like, it's not exactly like the book. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure the movie is fine. I really need to revisit it. I didn't even know that it was a book. Until yeah. So you were recently. like today years yeah. old when you learned that that was a book? or <laughs> I was like today years old when I learned that that was a book. <laughs> um, but it's also really interesting to look at all the culture and history that came just before Nazi Germany. And I, it's really sad that that's all Americans know of us. You know, when I tell people I'm German, they're like, oh, I right away I get some kind of Nazi joke. And I'm like, that's the only thing you know about my culture. Like, I've heard all the jokes. It does get a little frustrating. But if you just look at Kaiser Wilhelm's legacy, who ruled just before that time and his contributions to, to science, I mean, there's a reason that there's also a stereotype about Germany being a very scientific country and having a flourishing culture. We're lucky that we still have that stereotype about us because Hitler did everything he could to destroy science and logic. So we might know something about that in our country right now. Yeah, I, I was actually <laughs> thinking about that. The difference being, though, that America has so many private institutions that can fight against that and institutions of learning, of culture, universities that can combat ignorance when it comes from your government. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the podcast that you co-host called Modern Life. And it's a little unusual because depending on who is hosting, it it changes like what the focus is. But when you're the co-host, you sort of focus on books and their movie adaptations. So tell us a little bit about the podcast and how it got started. Yeah, we're approaching almost three years. My brother started the podcast and I was like, really? A podcast? It sounds like a lot of work. And I was right. So... That is true. It is a lot of work. I think it takes up more time than my part-time job. But what I really love about the podcast is we are all over the place and we can examine so many different things. And depending on who the guest is, they'll make me read books I would have never read. For example, I would have never read Dune. And now I'm excited for the new movie coming out when that really wouldn't have been on my radar I also read some really horrible things, like the book that Die Hard was based on. Which <laughs> oh, my gosh. Rough. <laughs> <laughs> the movie's definitely better than the book in that one. Just stick with the Bruce Willis version. <laughs> but also, interestingly, I think we have so many great movies that come from short stories, like when we did Rear Window and It's a Wonderful Life, which is such a Christmas classic. Those are based on two very short stories, and it's fascinating that we got these really wonderful, expansive movies out of that. So, yeah, I don't know. You have something like Dune, which is a huge book, and you get such a muddle of a film out of it <laughs> by David Lynch, and yet you have Rear Window, which is a masterpiece by Alfred Hitchcock. So, Well, I was fortunate. I had seen the David Lynch Dune film before I had read the book. But then the BBC, this has probably been gosh, 20 years ago, they did a Dune series. And was it, it was really good. Like it got me so interested in Dune that I read the whole series, like the whole thing. Oh my yeah. Gosh, you read so the whole thing? yeah. So I would say if you don't like the Kyle McLaughlin whole Dune thing, yeah. maybe check out the BBC version. <laughs> because I mean, it was interesting enough that I thought, I'm going to check out what this book is about and then I kept reading I think also the new movies coming out I mean I keep rewatching the trailer for it I think Denis Villeneuve did a smart thing and splitting it up into two movies because it's just too much ground to cover I think you'll just get confused again so yeah excited to see that one well Amy I was going to tell you I was today years old when I learned that Die Hard the movie was based on a book I didn't know that (laughs) oh my gosh it's so it's so sexist and racist but it things it's so woke it's oh my gosh it's such a terrible book (laughs) so that's one of your least favorites but what are some of your favorite book to movie adaptations that you've done on the show actually some of my favorites i haven't done on the show far from the matting crowd which is a book i absolutely loathe but both the new movie and the old one are so beautiful and i've gotten such beautiful stories out of this horrible book and then also the other one I would say is Howl's Moving Mm -hmm. Castle which the story by Diana Wynne-Jones focuses so much on magic and intrigue and character building and then Hayao Miyazaki takes that to make the animated film Howl's Moving Castle and it's about a commentary on war which was not in the original book but Again, Japan being such a scarred nation after World War II as well, he's able to focus on these quiet, still moments in 
his movie tribute the value to them. I always feel like he could have been so good at adapting like an Ellen Montgomery film because they both have this understanding of nature and the quiet moments. So those are two I definitely would someday want to do. Those I would definitely recommend. It's always so interesting what a director can just bring to a book, completely twist it into something new. So I had seen the film of Howl's Moving Castle first, and then this summer... Because my daughter loves the book, I read the book, and I actually prefer the movie over the How book. Funny, yeah. um, I mean, not that I dislike the book, but especially a book like that that's so imaginative. Yes. It's like I really mm-hmm. need somebody artistic to kind of interpret that for me. I know I read just recent the book Gideon the Ninth, and it was so outside my imagination. And, yeah. and it's like, I need somebody to translate this visually for me because I don't know what to do with it. And so I feel like Hal's Moving Castle is the same way. Well, when we were on your show and we did The Age of Innocence and Carrie and I read the book and then we watched the movie and we discussed it with you. It was such fun. And I mean, I love reading a book and then watching the movie, but there's something about doing that that makes you analyze the book in a way that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise and vice versa. And I've really enjoyed that process. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, we had such a great time. (laughs) Where can listeners find you and your podcast on social media? So you can email us, modernlifepod at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at modernlifepod. And then you can also check out our website on modernlifepodcast.com and also use a filter function to search for, you know, I just want the episodes on video games. I just want the episodes on books because we know we are kind of all over the place. So if you're only interested in one topic, check out the website and it'll guide you to what you need to know well we are so excited to talk about in just a few minutes what we're all reading we are back with tabby and with carrie and carrie what are you reading so amy as you know our book club this month is mary shelley's frankenstein so i have taught this book Oh. Yeah, yeah. So I have read it. This isn't my first rodeo with this book. I like the book. You have to sort of get into the mindset. It's not something that, oh, on a Sunday afternoon, I just want to relax. I think I'll pick up Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It starts with like a super minor character in terms of the story, but he's writing letters to his sister and he meets Victor Frankenstein. I always tell students, The monster is not Frankenstein. Everybody thinks the monster is named Frankenstein. No, the man who creates the monster is Frankenstein, which if you know that fact, it changes the whole outlook of the story. And it gives you a lot to think about. I mean, for our book club, I felt like I needed to give them some pointers about what to look for. I always do that with my students. Tell me everything. (laughs) What should I look for? Well, here's the thing. My theory on teaching high schoolers how to look for motifs and symbolic elements, you can't just tell them to look for things. It's like telling somebody to drive somewhere and not giving them directions. Hmm. And so I tell my students, look for fire, look for ice, look for when he brings up knowledge. And so I always try to, like I said, give them road signs to help them get through the process. 
I want to take this class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also told them to make sure they know the Greek story of Prometheus. It'll be interesting to see what this book discussion is like. I love how uh, right after Victor creates the monster and it doesn't turn out the way he wants, he's like, I'm going to bed now. <laughs> it's like the most relatable moment ever. It's like, I'm done with this. Right. I- I'm like, really? You never thought when you were digging out body parts that that this was maybe not going to turn out well. (laughs) And Mary Shelley is a really, maybe nuts is not the right word, but I read an article recently that after her husband died, she actually kept his heart in a box on her desk. Oh, I believe I mean, that's for real, she did. (laughs) Now, you know, in, in that time period, they did lots of what we would consider strange things around death and dying. Yeah. I mean, they would make hair jewelry and yeah. hair art with the deceased's hair. And, Propping up dead know. bodies in your pictures for last photo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, they did a lot of strange things. So maybe that's not a strange thing to have done, but it seems really strange no, now. No, she was, she was wild for her yeah. time. Well, one, one of the book club members, we follow each other on Goodreads, and I think she gave the book one star and she was like oh my gosh it was just so overwrought and so dramatic you know you have to remember mary shelley wrote this when she was a teenager so whether you were a teenager now or 200 years ago you still had those hormonal things going on and she had had a baby and so she had miscarried and i think she was pregnant during part of the writing of this and nursing a baby and i'm like her hormones were just all over the map Well, and just coming back to the fires we're experiencing now, I think people forget that she wrote this in the year without summer, when your every day would have been just black and like, what does that do to you? (laughs) You What is the the year without summer? What is that? Um, I think it was 1816, correct me if I'm wrong, in 1815, this volcano broke Mm -hmm. out and it created, yeah, this year without summer where the sky was just black with ash and that's the imagery that she recreates that famous story about the tree being caught with lightning that's in her story that's something she actually saw and also it affected so much of the agriculture of people just not being able to do (laughs) crops because the sun wasn't shining there's a whole series of paintings by turner that captures that like orangey misty dark light in his paintings and you can see it now when the fires are really strong it's a really eerily strangely orange light that comes through the clouds so in frankenstein nature and the weather is like its own character it's a really important part of the the story itself and you can kind of trace the almost the emotions of the characters through what's happening with the weather well tabby what have you been reading all righty so i've been trying to get into screenplays and I just read Greta Gorig's screenplay for Little Women. It's available online for free. You don't have to buy anything. You can just look at the PDF. And I thought she did so many absolutely fascinating things with the screenplay I'd never seen before. She uses different colors to indicate the different timelines because that's what that movie was famous for. It's not going in chronological order and using that as a really interesting framing device. And then it also uses slashes for when one character interrupt another character. And I know they had to rehearse that a lot because she wanted it to feel like a natural family environment, but also not like actors talking over one another. And the balance of that, I thought she did so well into the in the film. And you can 
see all that from the screenplay. I mean, every single scene is there. She really mapped it out in a way where she just had such a vision of what she wanted to do. And maybe that's part of being a writer and a director. So you kind of have those two sides to it and really know what you're going for. And I still think it's such a shame that it wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. But she also puts in character descriptions that tell an actor everything you need to know about that character in just a few lines. I think she does that so well. And I'm just going to read one little part of it. And this is right from the beginning. This is where Frédéric and Joe first meet. He is the I guess in the movie, he's the French tutor, not the German tutor that Joe eventually marries in the book. And this is when her dress catches on fire again. So this is Frederick. He speaks with a French accent and like all Europeans, seems to know something that we Americans don't, (laughs) which I thought was very funny. Joe straightens up. Good afternoon, professor. Frederick, you're on fire. Joe, thank you. (laughs) Frederick suddenly animated. You're on fire. Joe suddenly notices that the back of her dress has caught on fire. In a panic, another woman of the group helps her and the dress is put out. Disaster is avoided, although not humiliation. (laughs) And I just thought that was such a sweet little part. And that's how she wrote the whole screenplay. And I think that's why the movie is also so charming. I love that version. And then I did go back and I did watch the 1990s version that had Winona Ryder Mm -hmm. because I have several friends who prefer that adaptation. But I just love the 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 way she did the timeline and the way that she sort of melded the character of Joe and Louisa May Alcott. Yes. Yes. There's a quote in there where the mom says, some natures are too lofty to bend. And it's actually not from the book. It's from a letter that Louisa May Alcott's mother wrote to her. So I can definitely see what you're saying about her melding those two together. So I'm curious, Tabby, our book club went when that first came out, Greta Gerwig's version. And I remember having a, a fairly robust discussion at one point about the casting of Amy. She just seemed to be a little bit different than what a lot of people thought of their idea. Yes, I actually disagree with that. Uh, We did an episode on this, too, on the Modern Life podcast. What we all agreed on there is that people usually read this book when they're kids Mm -hmm. and there's a definite hatred in their hearts, (laughs) you know, for Amy. And pretty much everybody identifies with Joe. And I thought that Greta Gorick did such a brilliant job of saying, no, she's just another teenager, just like everybody else. And she also makes mistakes and does things that aren't very good or or noble and famously burning Joe's novel. And I also thought the decision to not cast a younger actress for Amy, the way that all other adaptations do, and we get to spend so much time with one actress and really identify with her. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I know a lot of people really hated it and thought that Florence Pugh was too old to play some of the earlier scenes, but I I thought it was a smart choice. All right. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? I finished recently a book called The Readers of Broken Wheel Recommend by Katerina Bivald, and that was published in 2013. And it is a book that's translated from Swedish. So for those who are doing reading challenges where you need to read a book in translation, uh, here's one for you to consider. So this is a book about the love and the power of books to connect people. And the book begins with our main character, Sarah Linkfist, who is a bookseller in her native country of Sweden. And she's an introvert. She's never had a boyfriend. She lives with her parents. 
and she lives an unexciting and a very quiet life. And she started a pen pal type relationship with an older American woman named Amy, who lives in a small town in Iowa called Broken Wheel. And during their correspondence, they bond over their mutual love of books. And Amy invites Sarah to come and visit her sometime. And then one day, Sarah learns that her bookstore is closing and she isn't sure what she wants to do with her life now. So she decides to take a trip to America to visit Amy, stay two months on a travel visa and try to make some decisions about the direction that her life should take. So when she gets to Iowa and is waiting at the bus station, Amy doesn't arrive. So she asks a passerby and he tells her that Amy died the week before. What? So, (laughs) yes, Amy is dead. (laughs) So Sarah doesn't know quite what to do, but the man insists that she come back with him to town and that they'll figure all of it out. So the townspeople are intrigued by someone from Sweden coming to visit Amy, and they're all in mourning for her. She was the glue that kept the small Mm. dying town of Broken Wheel together. So they decide that Sarah should just stay in Amy's house because that's what Amy would want. So Broken Wheel is a town that's full of characters with big hearts and quirky personalities. And it's also a town that's down on its luck. So it's like a one street town with many of the farms and businesses have gone bankrupt. And there's hardly any young people in the town to keep it alive. So Mm. the young people move away, many to a larger neighboring town that's called Hope. Yeah, there's no irony in that (laughs) name at all. But but there really isn't anything to do or see in Broken Wheel. So Sarah does what she does best, which is that she reads. Amy had a huge collection of books in her home. But at some point, Sarah wants to do something useful for the people of the town to pay them back for the kindness that they've shown her. So she decides to open up a bookstore with Amy's books in an old deserted store on Main Street. She can't actually work because of her visa, so she doesn't get paid. So she's just doing it to share something that she loves with the people of the town. So the townspeople, they help her fix up the store. And once they do that, it brightens up the town. People who don't think that they care about books and reading want to come in just to be around Sarah or the memory of Amy. So this little bookstore, in a way, brings the town back to life. That reminded me in many ways of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel yep. Pie Society <laughs> by Marianne Schaefer. It's not a read-alike, but it has many of the same qualities to it. So you have an exotic visitor come to their rural area. There are letters between Amy and Sarah that are inserted throughout the book. So while it isn't a complete epistolary novel like Guernsey is, it does have that element to it. And, of course, there is a love story. And there is the way that books and reading bring about community among the people of the town. I'm here. I'm in. You got me. (laughs) And then there's the whole question with the main character of will she stay or won't she? I like this book very much. I don't think it's as good as Guernsey. There are some storylines between characters that, to me, weren't fleshed out well Mm. enough. um, And that left me a little confused at times. But I love the bookstore in this book. Sarah comes up with all kinds of cute ideas. So instead of having sections in the store labeled by their genre, she has things like small town life, short but sweet, or (laughs) happy ending guaranteed. So... If you are needing a light book that makes you feel better about the world after reading it and you love books and bookstores yourself, you should give this one a try. I love yep. it. <laughs> and my mom is going to borrow good. it because she told me I can't give her any more books about like heavy things, pandemics and stuff. So <laughs> I'm picking that one up from Amy today to give to my moms. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Tabby her top five.
We are back with Tabby Politsky, and we are going to be asking her her top five. So like me, Tabby, you are a cat lover. So much of a cat lover that you mentioned you might go all Freddie Mercury and have a hundred of them if you could. So what do you think is the top thing that people misunderstand about cats? This is such a good question. Um, Cats are more like humans and form deeper relationships than dogs. So for example, if you try to drug a cat with like some piece of bacon or whatever she's not as likely to approach you because she's more mistrustful and hasn't built a relationship with you yet whereas a dog will be like food (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and cats want to be around you socially but they don't always want to be touched and i think that's where the stereotype comes from about cats being for lonely people i think it's totally true because Cats are more like humans, and therefore you want to be around cats, whereas dogs will just be your cheerleader, <laughs> start a Disney parade every time you come home, <laughs> whereas cats are I like... love that about dogs. <laughs> exactly. I love both cats and dogs, but I think it just depends on your personality. So, so I'm here to affirm the myth that cats are for lonely people. <laughs> I think it's true, uh, you know, because cats are going to be like, hey, what are we doing tonight? Just like watch some Netflix or do our own thing. But yeah, I love cats. I want to have a house with like a million rooms for cats. I always compare dogs are like elementary school students because they're enthusiastic. They're excited. Every time you see them, they're like, let me tell you about what I did. Whereas cats are like middle and high school students. They still need you and they still like care about you, but they're not going to be like in your lap necessarily licking all over you. When they need you, (laughs) they'll come around and otherwise, you know, they kind of do their own thing. Yeah. They also roll their eyes at you and think you're stupid. They totally give you that, that vibe sometimes where they're like, you are just really in my face and I want you to go away. But I say for myself, the reason I have cats is partly because I am super lazy. And with a dog, you have to take them outside. And if it's cold or if it's rainy, so I'm just lazy. Well, when you aren't reading, Tabby, you're a pastry chef. What is your top pastry to make? Or do you have a specialty? We make a lot of chocolate mousse. (laughs) Can't go wrong with that. It's so easy. Um, But I'm actually having a lot of issues finding really good chocolate lately. I could get it always at Whole Foods, but they've just rebranded too, where now the first ingredient on there is sugar. So if you're looking for chocolate at the grocery store, you want to get something that has the flavor and the complexity because you want to be in charge of how much sweetness you put in a pastry or cake or anything to do with chocolate because there's so many just cheap fillers i've seen a bunch where cocoa butter is the first ingredient to cocoa butter and sugar so basically you just have sweetness and fat in there do yourself a favor get yourself some good chocolate and make a really easy chocolate mousse (laughs) that's my recommendation what, what do you think people should be looking for as the first ingredient Yeah, definitely looking for something that has more cocoa solids in it. Those will have a bunch of different names. Sometimes it just says chocolate on there. Definitely not something where cane sugar is the first ingredient. Okay. (laughs) Question number three is, what is the top under the radar place that you've been in Germany that you'd recommend to an American to visit? This is such a good question. So I'm going to choose Leipzig. That is spelled L-E-I-P-Z-I-G. It's been a trade city since 
at least the time of the Holy Roman Empire. It was um, along the route of two really important medieval travel routes, and it has a history of publishing and learning. So a lot of book publishing has its epicenter in Leipzig, and they still have a huge book fair every year as well. I went there for the first time about two years ago, and interestingly enough, this is also where Goethe wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther when he went to university there, and you can actually visit the little cellar restaurant where he would always go with all his school buddies. And also Bach is buried there, the composer. Uh There's so much culture there, music, books, there's so many vintage bookstores everywhere. And unfortunately, it's kind of declined because it was part of East Germany. Mm. And but it's built itself back up again and become important politically and trade-wise in the 21st century. And because people there were so educated and were so cultured, the protests and demonstrations in that town actually strongly contributed to the DDR falling down and Germany being one country again. So that's a really interesting city to visit, especially if you're into books. Cool. So you're in the process of getting your dual citizenship for Germany and the U.S. So what's been the top hardest thing about that process? And how are you making sense of belonging to two countries? It's strange to think about. It's a very long process. It's also quite expensive. I first had to get permission from Germany to be a dual citizen. That took about a year and a half, and I still have another year to go to even see if the United States will approve me. I have been here for a long time and also have to realize my own privilege that I am the right sort of immigrant. That sounds really bad, but I am white and I am from Germany. So um, I have a lot of advantages there that other people unfortunately don't have. But when you've lived so long in one place, you know, I've lived probably half my life in Germany, half my life here, you'll always miss something no matter where you are. You know, there's always something from the other country that you're like, oh, I wish I could have that. And while I feel very comfortable in my identity as a German, I don't know how Americans feel comfortable in their identity because it's such a huge country. I could probably speak to, you know, having lived in Colorado or being a Californian, but how do people even identify as like, I'm from the United States because there's such diversity here from state to state, you know, so many different religions, cultures. Even the weather, it's just it's a strange thing to think about now that I'm going through this process. And because it's so big, it's also so contrary. It's such a rich and wealthy nation, yet at the same time, it still has the death penalty. And I'm like, I don't know, like, what does that mean? It's just something to reckon with. And I think that's something Americans have to do themselves. Actually, too. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely a country of contradictions in yes, many, many ways. Yes. and. It's interesting. I feel like, at least for me, I know that my mom's family way back goes back to Germany. And my dad's family, we're not sure if it was Italian. But, oh, it was at book club. We read a book called American Ghost. Amy, you've talked about that book, I think, on Perks. Hmm. And it was about a woman who studied her ancestry. And so we had this conversation about, you know, why do you think that's such an important thing that It seems like Americans are like super interested in learning, you know, where did my family come here? And I think it's because it's such a melting pot and there's been so many influences. We're sort of grasping for something a little more solid, like to pin our identities on. I I think it's, it's interesting. 
All right. So our last question for you, you've mentioned that as a baker, you have thoughts on being responsible with goods that have a colonial background. And we've talked a little bit so far just about sugar and chocolate. So explain what it means that certain foods have a colonial background and what is the top way you address this concern as a pastry chef? Yes. So when you tell people you work in pastry, nobody's going to have a negative response to that. You know, everybody likes cake. It's always a good conversation starter when people ask you what you do for a living. But so much of our history through baking, so much of the traditional recipes from Europe have this background of exploiting other people, namely sugarcane, chocolate, vanilla. These are all goods that not just have a really bloody history, but there's still such a disconnect nowadays between the people who grow the food and the people who manufacture that into, you know, whatever chocolate you're eating. Especially with those three items, it's important to look out for fair trade labels. And those are becoming more and more common. It's becoming so much easier to I think probably also through the internet to just be connected to those kinds of communities and really check online is the product that I'm purchasing, you know, ethically supported. For some reason in baking, I feel like there are more items that could potentially not be a very ethical thing to eat. So that's something that I'm trying to be more conscious of. Do you ever find yourself like if you struggle to find fair trade items that you have to substitute different things? Maybe because I'm living in California, but there's so much uh, available. And I've actually started purchasing a lot of stuff just in bulk online or over Amazon. It's become so easy just to get groceries delivered to your door. I had a huge bag of white chocolate delivered to me and I still haven't even gotten through half of it. And you can even choose like, oh, do you need this temperature controlled? Are you living somewhere where it's really hot? And I'm like, oh, this is easy. I don't even have to leave my house. (laughs) And it's just becoming easier. So to like to put the puzzle pieces together, vanilla and cocoa and sugarcane doesn't grow in Western Europe. Like to (laughs) get those items. Now, I guess there are parts of the United States where sugarcane grows, but you have to get those from countries that are closer to the equator that Mm -hmm. in the past England or France Mm -hmm. or other colonial type countries would take that country over and then grow those things by oftentimes forced labor or labor labor. that was yes yeah Yeah. now they might be underpaid labor so that's the point yes absolutely and there's there's actually a really interesting history with sugar in the united states where people would buy maple sugar so this is abolitionists during the time of slavery it would be a political statement to buy sugar for example from canada or from roots, like there's a sugar beet root. And so that's something I found out recently that that's something Americans would do just to, because they didn't want to support slavery, they would buy different kinds of sugar. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. I feel like I've almost been transported to another place, just (laughs) learning about Germany and your experiences. And it's always fun to talk to you. So thanks so much for being a guest on our show today. 
Thank you. And Germany is such a, again, diverse place. We're right in the middle of Europe and most of them do speak English. So definitely, even if you don't speak German, consider going to Germany for vacation. I think it'll be so easy to get around and everyone's going to want to practice their English and help you out. Well, you know, Amy, maybe if you and I do this fairy tale tour, we need to take Tabby with <laughs> I us. I know. Yes, and stop in Leipzig. <laughs> or I didn't say Lipstick. that right. But. No, you, have, you almost got it. Leipzig, you got it. <laughs> All Thank right. you so much. Thanks. This was fun. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.